0: Hi everyone, thank you for having me this morning. I wish that I could be doing this in person and I I wish that I could see all your beautiful faces, but here we are. Um, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Mira Solani Joyner and I was a staff member here at Forefront Church. Now I'm based in Washington, DC, where I'm entering into my second year of seminary at Wesley Theological Seminary. And I'm also a launch team member at Resurrection City D.C. Church, which uh, Forefront Church has actually been financially partnering with. So thank you so much for your support. Jonathan asked me to talk to you all this morning about the David and Goliath story. And I, this story is a favorite for my children. And it was also a favorite for kids at Kid Stuff as well. They absolutely love this story of a young boy defeating a giant using nothing but a slingshot and five stones. And I know we've heard this story from a perspective of David being a hero, someone who defeats this big bully. But the fact is, if we look at the text carefully, there's actually a lot of other stuff that's going on in this text. And we are missing out on all these details by taking a shallow Sunday school teaching that reads David as just a hero. And now, because I know that you have wonderful leadership here and because you are all open to being challenged by scripture i know that you know that david isn't this perfect servant of god that you might have been told of you've been made aware that of his leadership flaws and that he has he's participated in sin particularly in murder and sexual assault but what i want to talk to you about this morning is how these flaws have begun to emerge even from the very beginning and how these flaws and the appearance of these flaws can teach us about our own journey to dismantling systems of power today. So before we get into that, let me give you some context to this story. Our story of David and Goliath appears in 1 Samuel, and it occurs during a time of transition for the Israelite people, when they're transitioning out of a period of leadership by judges into a period of monarchy. Um, So you can see here, in this map of Israel, that it was a land that was surrounded by other nations. And that so there was a threat of these, that these other nations might invade uh, Israel. And this was this made the Israelite people pretty worried. Now this threat of invasion was pretty big when it concerned the, Phil- the Philistines, because the Philistines were really well organized. They were heavily militarized and they had state of the art weapons and mercenary. In fact, they had monopoly over metalworking in their region. And so they were plentiful in their supply of weapons and they would charge outsiders for their services. So they had over time, the Israelites and, and the Philistines would have conflicts. And so the people of Israel they would demand a king because they wanted to be similarly powerful and have this uniform government with an organized min- military so that they too could fil- could defeat the Philistines. Um, so we can read about this in 1 Samuel eight nineteen. It says, we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. So now, Saul was chosen to be king and then David was to follow. And now both David and Saul are chosen in part because they were good looking. But the translation of the word isn't handsome as we know it, but the word actually translates to tov, which I know Jonathan has talked to you all about. Tov means goodness. So there was an element of goodness about David and Saul, which is why they were chosen to be kings. Now in their position as king, their purpose was to govern the people of Israel and protect them from the external threat of invasion by their neighbors. And so we see in the David and Goliath story that David approaches this threat of the Philistines in a very different way compared to Saul. You see for Saul, his approach was to beef up his army and to meet threat by outside nations through violent means because he believed that this was the most effective way to protect his borders. So when David steps up to face off with Goliath, Saul seeks to equip David the only way that he knows how to defeat the enemy, which is by using weapons and armor. And in uh, 1 Samuel 1738, it says, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul sword over the armor and he tried in vain to walk, but he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Now this isn't dissimilar to the type of armor that Goliath was wearing too. Uh, we can read in, in 1 Samuel uh, 17, five to six, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. The coat of The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung over his shoulders. So let's have a look. Helmet, check, Uh, coat of mail, check, sword, javelin, check. So now for Saul, for victory, they needed to match Goliath in every way. So helmet for helmet, uh, sword for sword, weapon for weapon, armor for armor. And now this is based on an ideology of war. An ideology that said that if you are attacked, then you must fight back in the same way. But see, David, he refuses the ill-fitting armor and the weapons that are offered to him. For David, he decides on a counterintuitive approach of defeating Goliath. Instead of, instead of matching Goliath's armor, the Bible says in verse 40, that all he does is he arms himself with his staff, his uh, sling, and five smooth stones that he stores away in his pouch. And so then Goliath sees this, and in true showdown style, he starts talking smack about David's choice of weaponry. Because for Goliath and Saul and to everyone else, David just looks like this scrawny kid with pitiful weapons. But David didn't wanna put his trust on resources such as weapons and armor, the same resources, which by the way, the Philistines were experts in making and had monopoly over its production. And I'll explain why that's important later. So for David, the the armor was a hindrance. And so he wanted to place his trust elsewhere. So he declares to Goliath, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now see, David wanted to use a different method, not a heavily militarized method of defeating Goliath. And so he used a tool that he was familiar with, and he used his size and his skills to his advantage. He didn't perceive what he had as a weakness like everyone else did. Instead, he trusted in God to deliver him. And because of that, he was able to defeat Goliath. Now, I know you know the end of this scene, but let's read it. 1 Samuel 17, 50 to 51 says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. Hang on a second. In verse 50, it says that it was a stone that struck Goliath, killing him. But then immediately after that, the verse says that David killed Goliath with a sword. So which is it? Was he killed with a stone or a sword? Because if he was killed with a stone, then I haven't wasted all my time uh, illustrating how David defeats power using alternative tools. But if he was killed with a sword, then what he's done is just killed Goliath using the exact same tools of warfare. And what I wanted to do leading up to this is to highlight this tension in the scripture that we don't wanna talk about when we retell this story in Sunday school. Because we want this story to be a picture-perfect battle story where the underdog wins. We want this story to be about David completely relying on the Lord to deliver Goliath into his hand. But the scripture clearly tells us that David did, did use a sword to complete his triumph over the Philistine in that moment. And so the tension here is that it's likely a couple of different sources that were used to piece these stories together. And you can see that there is tension because one account favors David being brave, using nothing but stones and a sling, whereas the other portrays David as accommodating, to systems of power by using a sword, and not just any sword, but the one belonging to the enemy. So David tries to do something different. In the end, he uses the same tools to fight, and he's doing just the same thing as his opponent. In fact, he takes the same tool of warfare, and he does this. First Samuel 1754 says, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. So David goes on to store that power in his tent and what that armor represents. In the next chapter, he hoards even more power by taking Jonathan's, who is the son of Saul, and he would have been heir to the throne had it not been for David. He takes Jonathan's armor and his weapons too. And the the thing is, David doesn't even stop there. He comes to acquire Goliath's sword In chapter 21, he even at one point ends up fleeing to the Philistines and working with them to fight their enemies, who conveniently happen to also be enemies of the Israelites. David, what is going on here? You are a hot mess. I mean, what happened to the shepherd boy? That shepherd boy is long gone. And David, as an adult, fights many wars. He collects many more pieces of armor and gold and silver and brings them all back to Jerusalem. He does this knowing that the Philistines have full monopoly over metalwork and have power over the manufacturing of weapons. And so he too wants that same power. His story becomes one of him continuing to collect power and then also abusing his position of power. So in summary, the ancient Israelites saw a threat to their people and they saw the best way to stand up to this threat was by using the same tools that their neighboring nations had, which was to have a monarchy and a well-organized battalion. And when fighting one of their biggest threats, David attempts to use a different method. But in the end, he accommodates to the same ways of empire by using the same tools of violence again and again to conquer land and to gain power. And so I think what we can see in this small fragment of study that we just did is that our attempts to defeat systems of oppression are futile if we too start accommodating to those same systems and we start using those same tools of oppression. And we can see this happening in the history of the United States and its attempts to confront racial injustice. And we can see that these policy changes are put in place and it looks like Tove. It looks like goodness every single time. But these adjustments to policy are merely moving around pieces of the system. And instead, they're allowing for the evil of oppression against the black community to resurface in other ways. And an example of this that we can see is in January 1st in 1863. We know that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation declaring the end of slavery. But today we see modern day slavery taking place in the form of prison labor. In uh, May 17, 1954, the US Supreme Court declared that segregated schools were unconstitutional. But today we can see that the practice of redlining has allowed the practice of of systemically denying resources to, to poor and minority neighborhoods and has made public schools here in New York City amongst the most segregated in all of the nation. We want so much to have this picture perfect end to systems of injustice. And that's how we have viewed every movement towards racial justice until now. But another perspective sees how these changes have actually amounted to little, and black and brown people still face the same injustices. And even though we've been led to believe that we are moving towards progress and equity, it's all under a guise. And now now we're seeing this current movement to end police brutality and that it's about defunding the police. And when I first heard of this push, if I'm being completely honest, there was a part of me that felt really skeptical because I felt like that it might lead to chaos. And I quickly realized that my skepticism was rooted in a belief that the law and order that exists in America is fair is a fair and just structure. And that just isn't true. Chaos is actually the unfair justice system that criminalizes poverty, drug use and addiction, mental illness, and a number of other nonviolent acts that target black and brown communities. And overcriminalization in black and brown communities has led to the belief that black and brown folks are a perceived threat to the greater community. So when I talked about this overcriminalization with my husband, Mike, who grew up in the projects of East New York, he had to explain a lot of this to me because I didn't grow up here in the United States. I've only been here for eight years. So we talked about this and I asked him, what do you think needs to change? What needs to be different? And his answer was the need for more support, but not just in one area. And he would, he recalled, he told me about this mentorship program at his school that he and some of his friends were part of. And he had this mentor that was a black police officer that would take him and the other ca- the other kids in the program on camping trips. And they'd go to amusement parks and go whitewater rafting and, and go to museums. And he remembers that while there was support for him, there was very little support for his mother. And his mother was a single mom who struggled to keep a job that would allow her to also be a present parent to her three children. And he recalls hearing of all these resources out there, but no one knew how to access them. And now the good news that we're seeing today in in this uh, pandemic is that we've been seeing mutual aid networks, both in DC and in New York City during this pandemic, bring aid to people who don't have access. And so what I'm seeing, What I'm seeing happening in this moment is this collaborative and creative way that communities are coming together to meet the needs of people. And that there's this new creation and these grassroots efforts to mobilize support. And so I'm beginning to see hope because these conversations aren't just about police reform where we're just shuffling around the pieces and calling for funds to be allocated towards an increased police presence or beefing up their equipment to further criminalize nonviolent acts. Instead, the focus is turning to shifting funds so they go back into the community. And the conversations are around supporting community organizations and investing in their efforts to provide access to resources in high need communities. And now this movement is about imagining a different way of living where we invest in black and brown communities, where we invest in high need schools, where we invest in access to quality healthcare. We invest in providing quality public housing. It's time for us to invest in systems that restore life to those who have been disenfranchised instead of criminalizing their efforts to simply survive. And now Jesus's ministry did exactly this. The community would pool together their resources to feed 5,000. Even after Jesus's death and resurrection, the early church would do the same to care for the widows. They would pool their resources to ensure that their needs were met. Now, the good news is that I've been reading that you here at Forefront are already doing this too in your mutual aid efforts. I wanna send a massive shout out to Zanifa, Frank and the CARE team, because this is huge. This is what I read uh, Zanifa said in a Religion News Service article that was picked up by the New York Times. She says, the foundation of being a radical Christ follower is truly believing that every human, whether they're Muslim or Buddhist or anyone, deserves access to power and access to basic necessities of life. For whatever reason, society has not allowed you to have access. So if I have it, I need to share it. Now, this is a radical way of living. And this is the way of living that is the bringing the heaven here on earth, new creation, new life and resurrection that has been promised to us. And it's being realized right now. This is good news because now is the time where we set aside the old tools of oppression and we recreate together a new way of living, Mm -hmm. a new way of being where all life can flourish. And this begins with investing in the lives of those whose lives have never been allowed to flourish under the systems of law and order that honestly are rooted in white supremacy. Now my, my challenge, to you today is to continue resisting because we have to be in this for the long haul. We can't just keep shoveling pieces around to allow uh, oppression to seep in once again. When it gets uncomfortable, we have to resist reaching for the sword as a tool of justice. We have to resist falling back on law and order. My challenge to you is to continue seeking and supporting imaginative and collaborative efforts to bring restoration to black and brown communities and to reach out beyond our networks. Because this, this is what will bring us all closer to realizing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for this community. I thank you, God, that you show up in this way in this time when it's just so hard to see your face and so i ask you god to continue showing up in the ways that we meet one another in in our in in our needs and that you continue to show up as we meet help to support communities community organizations and meet their needs God, I pray that you show us and reveal to us new ways that we can keep recreating and collaborating collaborating in ways that bring new life to this earth, to this nation, to, to our siblings. In your name, we pray, amen. Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope, once again, I hope to see you in person. Be blessed and be safe. The Thanks for the listening world. to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.